And now to someone with a broader concern about the election of Donald Trump and what it may tell us about ourselves. Ian Tyrrell Benson is a visitor to Australia who's decided to put down roots. He's an international scholar in law and ethics, a legal philosopher, writer and a practising legal consultant. In fact, um, a few years ago, he was one of the two non-nationals on the Continuation Committee drafting the South African Charter of Religious Rights and Freedoms. He's also uh, done consulting work for the Government of Canada, and now he's arrived here in Australia to be... um, I like the Socrates phrase, a gadfly in our own body politic. Ian Benson, welcome to Sunday Nights. Thank you, John. And you've taken a particular interest in civil society, ethics, religion. We're sitting here in the wake of uh, Donald Trump's election to the United States. Uh, lots of people are painting sort of all sorts of cataclysmic horror stories. As a legal scholar and somebody who's interested in constitutional and civic law, what's your observation about uh, Trump's victory? Did you see it coming? I did. I did see it coming. I predicted that would happen parallel to the Brexit vote, actually. Which was also part of the same phenomenon? Yes, I think so. I think it's a rejection of the status quo by those who feel alienated and not listened to. Mm. And uh, it's not appropriate for radio listening, but Michael Moore used a particularly strong phrase to say what it would be historically. It would be a very large central digit raised to the, to the uh, existing system. And I think he was right. That's what we saw. Is there something seriously fractured about the system and it does it have to do with the way we conduct our politics or have come to conduct our politics? Yes, I think there is something very seriously wrong with Western cultures. I think they're in a setting I would call full drift ahead, which is that there's no attention really to the deeper principles that have to animate um, not just government but civil society and our understanding of citizenship itself. We're trying to embark on the project of of nation states now without any attention to the moral substratum. So the moral basis of culture is just being ignored. It goes back to the whole idea of the social contract. That is why we join together. Yes, and even beyond that, it goes Aristotle in the politics said that the student of politics must first understand the soul. And the soul is something we don't talk about much anymore. It makes us almost uncomfortable. And yet for many people, they understand the need to attend to that. It goes to who we are. That's a definitional problem that's been um, commented on socially for many years. I I guess the most popular phrase that you hear bandied about is is we've stopped being persons and and have become commodities. Does that go to what you're suggesting? Yes, I think that's part of it, that the... The idea, what, what one philosopher calls homo economicus, that we're, we're essentially understood in terms of our ability to make and produce. And our relationships get consistently reduced to the contractual. That's right. And the, and the marketplace tends to dominate more and more of our thinking of what's really worthwhile. So that what the, the deeper concepts of meaning, beauty, truth, goodness, and so forth, and virtue, the beauty of the idea of virtues, is turned into, in fact, a language from the marketplace that everybody uses, but no one really knows what it means, and that's the term values. The other element of this discussion that that props up from time to time is that because there is so much coming at us at such a rate, Mm. then there is no time any longer to go deep. It's Everything is is on the horizontal and, and in the immediate. Well, there's some truth to that, but I think in part we are 
our own worst enemies in that respect. I don't think it has to do that to us, and I don't think we need to live according to that agenda. You mean there is room not to have Facebook, not to have Twitter, and to sit in a room with a good book? <laughs> I banned laptops in my classroom, and you should have seen the faces of the students. They, they thought that was a, sort of the one fixed point in the universe. So you were making a statement. I mean, you weren't just having a joke. You, you were actually saying, no, this is serious. Yeah, I approached the dean of the law school of law where I teach, and I said I'm planning on it, getting rid of laptops in the classroom. I'd already told the students I didn't want internet connection while we were having the class on. Three-hour lectures, the students were on their phones. They were you know, looking at the fluffy kitten videos and buying things online and so forth. It was just a big distraction, and I found it getting in the way of the of the conversation in the classroom. Conversation is a beautiful term that means to turn together with. Well, if one of you is focused on a screen looking at fluffy kitten videos on on Facebook, you're not going to be turning anywhere except just in that kind of individualistic Mm -hmm. bubble of the technology and yourself. The other thing that's happening in regard to that is is an argument that uh, even in the media, it, it, it affects us. They're saying, well, look, it, the long form is over. You've got to condense everything to where it's it's biteable, it's digestible in five minutes mm. and that people can take that away with them. A- and that's changing the nature of the print media, the yeah. visual media. Yes, that's right. I think you're making a very strong point. I mean, the short form of Twitter is twit. And I think what's happened here is that the kind of what Eliot called the distracted from distraction by distraction becomes the kind of modern mode and it's very unhealthy and it's actually unhappy. We don't live well bouncing along the surface. We actually want to reflect and want to have peace. And this can only be obtained by, uh, I think, an intentional set of decisions in relation to, amongst other things, technology. There doesn't seem to be anything... um preventing this this drive accelerating almost to be the last four or five years it seems almost hurtling into mm. a future where it's 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 if you're not on top of that technology now you can't catch up with it over three or four years because it will be redundant within three or four years and you'll be into the next wave of technology and that imperative seems almost unstoppable because it's it's technologically and consumer driven that's right. That's right. It's, I think it's helpful to remember the origins of the word technique and technology. And it's the word techna from the Greeks, the idea of, of the means of something, how it works. But techna was never an end in itself. It was, it was in relation, always said to be in relationship to telos, which meant purpose. So what's happened is we've become incredibly technically focused, but we've no longer really we don't really understand what things are for or what we're for. We have this no we have this vanishing sense that there's any purpose for ourselves personally or in relationship with others. So how do you think the Trump phenomena is linked to all of that? Well, notice something interesting about the Trump phenomena. Those debates, so-called, between Trump and Clinton were extraordinary for what they didn't discuss. There was no deep conversation there about the nature of the American culture, the the things that were making people uh, unhappy, lonely, the massive health problems they have psychologically, the f- millions of children on, on Ritalin and with attention deficit disorder, which is all related to the speed that you're describing in technology, I think. So there was this non-attention to what really matters and, uh, in a sense, a kind of almost f- staged event of what became 
a, a sad display of personal insult and animosity. And it, it, that stood in for what ought to have been a debate about the things that really mattered to American culture. And I think people have found that kind of um, spectacle insulting on some deep level. And I, I think it's, that's what people yet react at the same against. T- yet at the same time, it's riveting. Yeah. Well, we all like a gladiator combat, you know. So let's now go back to your primary interests and the way in which the things you're principally concerned about, law, ethics, civil society, can inform that debate. Because it almost seems as if we take what's been happening as it's all too late. The train's left the station, pal. Yeah, except that it's not in one... This this train, fortunately, doesn't have a uh, one direction. Um, human beings have the wonderful capacity of making decisions to, to go in different directions. And if they discover that the direction they're going doesn't make sense, they can change it. And that that's the creed occur coming out in this Trump phenomenon, the Brexit phenomenon. I think so. I think there's a tremendous alienation from, amongst other things, the economic system. People don't trust the banks. They don't like the banks. They don't trust the media, mainstream media. They saw the mainstream media misdescribing what they were watching in other um, ways on, for example, YouTube. So they would watch a Trump speech and hear some actually uh, interesting things intermixed with the buffoonery. And those interesting things included the kind of subject matter that Michael Moore commented on when he referred to Trump speaking, interestingly, in Detroit uh, to a bunch of automotive executives saying to them that if they took their production outside the U.S., he would slap a tariff on it, 35% tariff. Now, Moore makes the point, and Michael Moore is no friend of the what he would call the right wing and certainly no friend of Trump's. Moore made the point that this, this was an extraordinary moment because Trump was the first politician he had ever heard take on the auto industry on behalf of workers. Now, this was extraordinary. Now, the fact that this was available on YouTube and one could hear Michael Moore saying it, and then one never saw it in the mainstream media was just one example of probably thousands of systematic misdescription of Trump. Mm. And I think this just as the time went on, the people got more and more frustrated with the misdescription of what was actually going on in the political debate. Because the interesting thing as we stand here at the moment, after the election and prior to inauguration, is that who Trump is as a politician is yet to emerge because he is neither left nor right. In his career, he's moved conveniently to either side that suits his immediate uh, attention span or, or, or the fascination he has with the moment. And in a sense, this does give pause for both ends, for both the left and the right, to actually reassess. That is, he is a break figure, a, a, for somebody who's breaking the mould. And for all the negativity leaving aside some of the things he may have said about foreign affairs, there there will be opportunity for both Republicans and Democrats in the United States to assess who they are and what they're there for. I think that's right. I think this this ought to prompt a very serious set of evaluations about the nature of their culture and their political process because I think what we saw were two candidates that most people didn't like at all. Whether one was a Democrat or a Republican, most people held their nose in terms of the candidates. Now, that's bizarre. You've got a population of over 300 million, and this is the best we can do. That seems very strange. Hmm. Ian Benson, that's a fascinating insight. Uh, Let's take a break, have a little music, and then come back and talk about what you give your life to in, in professional circumstances. 
Our guest is uh, Dr. Ian Benson, Ian Tyrrell Benson, from um, Edinburgh, Scotland, as you can understand. We had linked with a little sort of US tinge there. Western, Can- Western Canadian. Western please. Canada. Yes. Of course. <laughs> um, he's a ethics and constitutional law expert, consultant to the South African Charter on Religious Rights and Freedoms, also to the Canadian government. He's our guest on Sunday nights, taking up residence in Australia, becoming one of us. Next year, of course, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, that moment in time that releases a different way of understanding the individual Mm. and puts a whole series of different emphases on who the individual is. But coming out of something foundational to all individuals, which he touched on at the very start, religion. That is that, that if we're looking at all these questions of value, it's religion that it can't be divorced for religion. Does this explain why you've retained this interest yourself in both religion and in law and civil society? Very interesting question. I actually started off my first degree at university in Canada was in English literature. And I got very interested in medieval literature and was urged to study, to do graduate work and ended up going to Scotland to study theology because one of my instructors told me that one of the deficits in medieval literature studies was insufficient theological knowledge. So I was at St. Andrews University, which is a lovely place in in Scotland, ancient university there. And it was while I was studying theology that I realized that a lot of the questions that we were looking to religion to answer in earlier ages were increasingly going to be answered by law in our age. So then I decided that I, the action, as it were, was going to be in legal studies, and I applied to, and, and went to Cambridge to study law after that. Somebody made the observation to me that one of the differences you can tell between the American presidential system and the way that the civil society is structured and the British system really can be traced back to religion. Mm-hmm. The British system, the parliamentary system, representative government flows out of that hierarchical episcopal system of understanding governance, the American is post the Reformation and it's about the, the Calvinist view of the local church being the only group gathered together so everything has to be local. And yeah. that, that ultimately both systems are religion structurally at their roots, are yeah. religious expressions. Yeah, well, every, everything is actually. For ourselves personally or for the nature of our communities, we, we live, as McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre points out, within narratives. We understand ourselves in terms of a story. We don't articulate it that way to ourselves, maybe, but we are, in fact, all of us inhabiting a sense of meaning or purpose, whether we articulate it or not. But we're losing that story in Western society these days, if religion is central to it. Well, I think there's no question religion's central to it, because ultimately what articulates our sense of purpose and meaning are the things that are ultimate to us. So for the Greeks, the term cosmos meant order because they believed the universe had an order and meaning. <clears throat> in the opposite of cosmos was chaos, which was fragmentation. Now, one of the interesting things is I mentioned the idea of Aristotle saying that the student of politics has to understand the soul. Well, this importance of the soul to us as persons and in relation with other persons is absolutely critical to the kind of way we live and the kind of society we live in. Now, we've been living in a sense of spiritual capital, and it's a capital that we've badly invested in recent periods. And I think we're now starting to see the results of not having that. That is the centre cannot hold, to exactly. quote. Yeah, a wonderful poem. That's right. Uh, that, that's 
been quoted at various times, and they usually come at times of, of, sort of spiritual or psychic crisis mm. in a society. In fact, it was written out of that experience. Yeah. What are the key elements in that that you would you would say lead us to that position now? What would the, be the key markers that you say we need to pay attention to because the warning signs are there? Well, individualism. I would say, the idea that we exist for ourselves alone, the idea that the central thing to us is freedom rather than the thing we choose to use our freedom in relation to. So the individualism, just me, freedom, just my choices. <clears throat> and then sec thirdly, the, the point mentioned earlier about technology, that somehow science, the empirical, will provide an answer to all our problems. And I think all three of those are disastrous. Every one of those has been a huge mistake. First, we don't live just for ourselves. The things that really matter to most of us are the things that are connective. Love, sharing beauty, appreciating the goodness, a sunset. All of these things that are, in a sense, transitive. The po poets tell us about. We go to art galleries. We listen to music. We want to share things with friends. The idea of friendship. All of these things are bigger than just us as individuals. We were able to enjoy those, so those of us in Western society with a sufficiently long cultural memory, for the last hundred years, Western society has been able to engage in those pursuits in a way which opened them up to the common person mm. and they hadn't been historically before. We seem to be passing through a transition phase that puts that, all of those things that you've articulated that we were able to enjoy as a society together, at risk. Again, we're back at the Brexit phenomenon. People are sensing that these things may be at risk again, that the door on everybody's opportunity to participate in that way is closing. What, for you, would be the, the necessary pillars of a functioning society that, that we could be in danger of losing hold of? Well, the standard answer, I think if you were to ask that at a... Um any kind of grouping of people who are, would call themselves fairly well-read would be that rights are the thing that are going to structure our relationships. But I, I think that's not a good answer. I don't think we can structure our lives around rights because rights are assertions in a way against others. I think there's something more profound than rights, and that's the things that we're not obliged to do but the things we choose to do because they're the right thing to do. They're the correct thing to do. They're the thing that we understand to be most meaningful. So I think it's an articulation of, of not just obligation, because that makes it sound weighty and, and uh, onerous, but it's, it's the fact that there are things we're free to do because they're good in themselves. That is what we're not understanding. So the earlier point that we're sort of driven by technology, I think that's only partly true. I think we're not standing up against that. We're allowing ourselves to have the pace set beyond our own choices. And that's tragic because we can choose to do things to slow things down. We can choose to live differently. And that may have a cost to it, but invariably when we make that choice in the right way, there's a freedom in it and freedom can be found. Our civil societies are structured by law. And uh, there's an argument about the place of law mm. and the individual. Um, you can have a libertarian on one side. You can have uh, a, somebody, a communitarian, radical communitarian. Now, there are, there are virtues in both ends of that spectrum 
the law is used to set the boundaries of both of those and, and actually defines your civil society. What are the key elements in the law for you as a, as a, a legal scholar that, that yeah. prop up this, that sustain well, this? Well, th- one of the things I'd want to say about law is that it has to understand its limits and we need to understand its limits. Law isn't designed to be a, a wall-to-wall control device in a free society. And increasingly, for a variety of reasons, some of which we've discussed, law is expanding to deal with control because we don't have control as well-developed in other areas. So there's lots of examples of this. You have to continually proliferate tribunals of all kinds because people no longer behave in mannered ways. You create laws and rules because people weren't, in a sense, self-governing. So you have external governance. That's one example. But the law has a necessary but not a sufficient function culturally. It's very important to, to understand that. So what is law doing? Well, what in its ever-expanding frame at the moment, law is putting pressure on things that really should be prior to law, like the family, like religion. Religions and the families are not constituted by law. They don't, they're not real because they're created by law. They're well, organic. Yes. Yeah, they're prior to law. They're understood to be organic. They emerge from how we live together. And, and law really needs to understand and respect these different um, associations that are in the world. Because if it doesn't, we start to move into the kind of culture that b- believes that all of these aspects can be regulated and should be regulated by law. So you get in these kind of regimes where you get more and more law into the family, into religion, you actually have a, a restriction of freedom in very profound ways. And this has been well understood in philosophy. Bentham, uh, in his work on legislation, Jeremy Bentham, in the, in the late 18th, early 19th century, he pointed out that every time you have an increase in rights, you have a decrease in liberty. And that's an important insight because we can, we've become very um, focused on rights. And as Marianne Glendon of Harvard University wonderfully put it, rights talk has led to the impoverishment of political discourse. At the other end of that... And taking again the uh, the, the Butler Yates uh, quote, things mm. fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mm. Uh, the centre has become wobbly and people say, look, at, in some areas there is a libertarian aspect to our culture at the same time. You're seeing this increase in law, which is actually pulling down the very boundaries that we need to keep our civil society, to keep the social contract intact. It's quite ironic, isn't it, that the very liberalism we thought would give us freedom ends up ushering in ever more restrictions, greater and greater restrictions. So, for example, this term that people don't like, the term itself is loaded politically, political correctness. The idea of political correctness, I think that was a key to uh, some of Trump's popularity. He came out in one of his early public pronouncements against political correctness. And one got the sense, listening to that speech, that the audience loved that. And there was a kind of universal sense of, oh, I hate that as well. And whether one was of the left or of the right, there was a sense in which this kind of new authoritarianism of political correctness, telling us what we ought to believe, what we ought to say, was something that people really don't like. But paradoxically, it's something the churches used to be very good at. They used to specialise in wagging the finger from the pulpit and telling people what they ought to believe and ought to think. And people revolted against that. They walked out of church partly as a result of being told that they had to comply to a set of structural dictates 
that were not intuitive. They were there because the institution said so, not because their soul said so. Yeah, but I think that's a very valid point. And I think it emerges from a failure to properly teach why things ought to be done a certain way. A parent that tells their children, do this, and the child says, why? And the parent says, because I said so, is giving an answer that makes us all smile because we've all said it. Um, but it also is apparent that when we, as if the child gets older and that's the best the parent can do for an explanation, something's missing. So at some point, the religion or any framework of, of instruction that loses the ability to explain from first principles why things are the way they are, it, and it then just replaces kind of rational discourse and education with commands. And a command theory of, of anything, whether it's religion or culture, is not a very nice place to live. But at some point, commands are necessary, aren't they? Because mm -hmm. people tend to act according to self-interest for some good part of the time. And sometimes self-interest is destructive of the interests of others. Right. So now let's go back to your point about the church or about religion. Insofar as religion can explain to the times, whatever period we're looking at, why certain things are consistent with what the Greeks used to refer to as human flourishing, how do we live well, then when they make that linkage well, it'll work and it'll live and it'll grow on its own because it makes sense. When they can't make that explanation in a winsome and attractive manner, then the times will reject them. I've often quoted um, the late recent great atheist of our age, Christopher Hitchens, where mm. he said in a well-known debate with his brother, um, look, Christendom destroyed itself in the 20th century through two dreadful wars, but uh, I'm not quite sure if we found anything to replace it. Yeah, and that's too quick. I, I mean, I was a great... I, I've heard Christopher Hitchens' uh, debate, and he was extraordinary. But he was sometimes a little quick and slap, slapdash with his statements, and that would be one. I mean, the 20th century, I think, showed all of us that no matter what one's human group, it had the capacity for extraordinary damage. Um, the death tolls of atheistic regimes were, if anything, larger than the mm. religious death tolls. And where does this get us? It simply points us out that human beings have this endless capacity for destruction. But he was saying there was, he was recognising there is a need for a frame of values that holds a civilization together, mm, a way of being yeah. together. I, I wince at the term values because, as the Canadian philosopher George Grant so beautifully put it, values language is an obscuring language for morality used when the idea of purpose has been destroyed. So we think we're speaking morally when we speak about values, but in fact we're not. So back to your question about Hitchens. The, the idea that religion is kind of this thing we create because we need it, is a kind of sceptical way of viewing, a Darwinian way, if you like, of viewing religion. And I've made some great friends in Sydney at the New South Wales Humanist Society, and I've spoken to them at their invitation a couple of times, and it's been a lot of laughter, actually, as we talk about, I talk to them about the need for the, the religious basis of their own principles. For example, the brotherhood of man, which they endorse, and the dignity of the human person. I point out that both of those are non-empirical. You can't weigh brotherhood and you can't weigh dignity. You made a deliberate decision to move from theology to law. Mm. Did our discussion, the sorts of things we're discussing, have a bearing on that? Absolutely. I realised that as a young student that the questions that were originally being answered within theology were now in an age of scepticism going to be answered by whatever was controlling oughts. 
And I saw that very quickly, that would be law. And so I've watched law become more and more religious at the very time as religion becomes less and less relevant, so we think. We're rapidly running out of time, but let's go to another political hot-button issue. What the recent staff with Trump and others has thrown up is a renewed debate between the libertarian and the communitarian view of life, if you like, those who say... um, if you can even go back in Catholic social teaching to Rerum Novarum and the Mm. dignity of labour, that there does need to be an agreement in society that to keep it working, there has to be a redistributive element that capital naturally centralises and that unless that is in some way recycled back to the lower end, it will ultimately become self-destructive. It will destroy the very system which creates it. That's becoming once again a legitimate argument in society. Economists like Thomas Piketty talking about it. There's a renewed debate about that, recognising that neither the extreme right solution nor the extreme left solution is the correct one. Well, I think that's right. I think any reflection on the current distribution of wealth and and opportunity tells us that there's difficulties and and gross dis, disproportion of, of opportunity particularly. That's mm-hmm. where it really bites because the person who has says, well, look, I've done this through my, through my own labors. But the point is other people can't even get to square one to start building up such things. I and mean, we tend to be reverse snobs in that too. We say, well, look, I'm the same as every other man and if I can do it, then everybody can do it. Yeah, it's which of course thing. is a fallacy. But, you know, in South Africa, one sees these horrendous disproportions that really call for, I think, ethical and moral response. You you can be just hundreds of meters away from a Lamborghini dealership and see a squatter camp. So one's faced with the, the sheer um, imbalance of these things. And the important thing about that South African example mm. was it was religion in a sense that was critical in both the separation in South Africa so many years, but in building the bridges that enabled people like Mandela and Tutu and others to create that new yeah. environment. Yeah, that's, I think that's important. South Africa is a country that because it's been, at a, in a sense, at the precipice and seen the possibility of civil war in the 90s, has realized the absolute importance of the metaphysical truths that are maintained within religions, plural. Therefore, that was the country in which I wasn't surprised to see the South African Charter of Religious Rights and Freedoms emerge because they understood the importance of religions. A lot of these other countries, Canada I would very much put in that category and perhaps Australia, are living under the illusion that they can continue very fine, thank you very much, with no real attention to what one might call the moral fabric of the culture. And you can't. You're going to be in, as I said earlier, full drift ahead. And that's not a very uh, safe form of navigation. Ian Benson, we could continue this conversation for many, many hours. <laughs> um, you've, you've opened up part of a dialogue that's critical. Let me ask you one question. If religion continues to recede, as it is in Western societies, what then does take its place as, as a framework for talking about foundational values and the way we construct our society? Well, I think we stop talking about foundational values. We start talking about the the goods and truths of a society. We start to talk, in fact, about civic virtues. We teach about virtue. I do this in my law courses all the time at Notre Dame. I teach about virtue because justice is one of the cardinal virtues. If you don't talk about justice in relation to law, how can you really talk about law? So you, you segue from theology 
to uh, to law. Sure. You know, Jan Smuts, the great South African statesman, gave us a term that we all use, but I don't think we know it comes from him. And that's the term holistic. It was Smuts who coined the term holism. And by that, he meant we have to understand that all truths are held together by definition. And that means that science is held together with metaphysics. The physical and the metaphysical are essential. The Greeks understood this. Our whole Western tradition understood this. And it's our contemporary arrogance that's making us ignorant. Is the academy going to be capable of taking us back there? Because we've seen the way academic life has changed in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, it used to be run by the faculties, now it's run by the registrar, who's (laughs) concerned about the budget. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, well, the thing is, I don't like the language of back because it suggests a kind of retrenchment or or that that truth or meaning is located in a particular chronological moment. So I don't think it's going back anywhere. I think what we have to do is take stock, as it were, of where we are now and say, look, what's missing? And I think intelligent reflection on the conditions of contemporary Western cultures, just to choose them for the moment, leads us to recognize that there's an absence at the core of our current functioning that is not being filled. And that's essential to politics, essential to law, essential to medicine, essential to every aspect, education of our, of our cultural endeavor. And that shared core is the purposes of what we're doing. We've got to articulate what they are. What is the purpose of being an Australian citizen? Why are we doing this? Why do we get up every morning? Is it just so we can, you know, speak Australian and have a good coffee? No, there's more to it than that. And that's those kind of purposive questions need to be at the core of what politicians talk about, the core of our understanding of law, the core of our understanding of the of the healthy community. What is your purpose in life, of course, leads to how you're spending your days, leads to how you're living your life. Sure. Ian Benson, great to have you with us. You've started a conversation. Let's hope we can continue it sometime. I look forward to it, and I, I really appreciate your questions. They're excellent ones. Ian Benson, thanks once again for joining us on Sunday Night. Great pleasure. This has been a podcast of Sunday Nights on ABC Local Radio. Thank you for listening.